Welcome to the Futurati Podcast. Any member of the Futurati is somebody who believes in the power of the future. We know there's a better world ahead, and we indeed have the power to make it so. In our podcast, we talk to the best minds in the world about the most urgent problems facing mankind today, and we hope you learn as much from them as we do. I'm Thomas Fry, a professional futurist and keynote speaker. And I'm Trent Fowler, a machine learning engineer and author. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for listening to the Future Audio Podcast. Tonight, we're joined by Scott Young. Scott is a blogger, teacher, and the author of Ultra Learning. Scott rose to fame for the MIT Challenge, in which he successfully completed MIT's four-year computer science curriculum in just one year. Since then, he's helped thousands of people achieve their career goals and be more productive. If you enjoy this interview, please don't forget to like the episode and subscribe on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts so that we can keep bringing you this great content. Scott, thanks so much for coming on the show. Oh, it's great to be here. Why don't we hear a little bit about your background, your interests, and what brought you to the place you are today? Yeah. So, I mean, that's a broad question. I've been a writer for 15 years uh, on, on my website, um, largely focused on learning, but also about like goal setting, productivity, self-improvement. And I guess the thing I'm most known for now is taking on sort of these, uh, what I call ultra learning challenges where you trying to learn something in a kind of compressed time frame using unusual methods. So um, for instance, the MIT challenge was a project I did about now 10 years ago, where I tried to learn MIT's four-year computer science curriculum in 12 months by taking their free materials online and trying to pass the final exams. And I also did another project trying to learn four different languages in one year with the kind of method of not speaking English while I was traveling. And I actually did that with a friend. And I wrote a book about it. I wrote a book, Ultra Learning, which not only detailed my own projects, but also lots of other people's, including uh, you. I think you make an appearance in the book with your STEM punk project. Page so, 22. Um, yeah, exactly. So, <laughs> I mean, uh, I should I should be asking you about your projects and stuff as well. Yeah. Can you say the the next answer in Korean? <laughs> I've just I've wanted to see. If you're yeah, 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 probably not. I think, um, you know, it's funny you bring into that because I think that Korean was definitely the worst one of the four that we did. So of the ones that like, okay, like go, let's have an interview. That would be my hardest. And that actually happened to me because when my book came out in Korean, the, uh, the Korean translator publisher did some promotion for it and got a Korean newspaper to interview me. And most of the interview was in English, but then they're like, okay, now for the Korean <laughs> section. And I was like, oh man, this is like, again, seven years ago, haven't done as much practice as I should since. And um, being the fourth stop in uh, four, it was definitely like, yeah. you know, that one was like, all right, if I was basing the evaluation of the trip on that leg, I would say it was not, not nearly as successful, but Spanish first one up was pretty good. Yeah, Scott. Scott and I both have some grounding in Korea, and I lived in Korea for two years. So theoretically, oh nice, wow. Theoretically, we could do this uh, interview. Yeah, but I would want to. Hangumal chogumal These days. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so that surprises me that Korean was harder than Mandarin. Was it just because that was the end of the project? Um, no, I don't think that there's any like intrinsic difficulty. It's just that uh, like it was literally that Korean was after Mandarin, and and the difference too is that like. 
you know, I, I don't know how much we want to get into this, but I did this with a friend. And so we all had like our picks of which countries like, so I was really interested in going to China and my friend was really interested in going to Korea. I, I initially wanted to go to Japan and learn Japanese. And so I think that influenced our motivation as well, because when I hit China, I was like really hit the ground running. I'd already done tons of flashcards. I'm learning the characters. I was like intense about it. Uh, and then by the time, you know, after three months of doing that really intensely to just kickstart it up again in Korea. And um, I did do the studying. I did do that, but it just was not the full, like, you know, full throated effort right, at that right. point. And uh, my friend, on the other hand, that was like the country that he really studied right. hard in because he cared about it. Um, and I think also just, you know, it's funny to think about because when I describe the sort of process of like, okay, you land there. And then all of a sudden we're like taking videos of each other only speaking in that language. <laughs> um, it just sounds like it would be impossible to sustain for more than two weeks. So the fact that we got through nine months in three countries before it was kind of like, okay, this last one's a grind. I think, you know, itself is, uh, was, was a little bit of a revelation for us that, you know, um, you know, ta talking to people there, they can't imagine doing, okay, I can't imagine going in and only speaking this language for, you know, a couple of weeks. Yeah. That, that was basically the approach that I took. I, I was teaching English, yeah. so I had to speak English nice. while I was there. Yeah. But I mean, any, any chance that I got to speak Korean, I didn't, I was in a little small town where most people, oh, their yeah. English was not very good or, or basically non-existent. So I just had no choice from the beginning to order things in Korean and talk to people in Korean and ask questions in Korean. And that, that really helped a lot. Yeah. And I mean, I, I should, I shouldn't be too hard on myself. Like if anyone wants to see, we have videos where we have like, you know, 15 minute, 20 minute conversations with people, people after, I just think it wasn't, uh, Korean is a difficult language, I think compared to European languages. Oh yeah. And I just like the Mandarin, I was like, really like, I was, you know, swinging for the fences on that one. And then, and then Korea, it's like, okay, I'm in a little dorm room. We've got bed bugs. It's kind of like, all right, <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> this, this trip is, this trip is almost getting to close. Just gotta, just gotta keep at it. But I mean, I think, um, I think that's also one of the things too, is that I, I, I like to take on these challenges almost as the the perspective I want to take on it is not like, oh, look at me, I'm all great, but just sort of like, well, what could you do if you if you just tried to do this? And so I think um, there's definitely flaws and failures and, you know, ways that things didn't meet the ideal in, in any of my projects. But I think that, um, you know, what people appreciate about them and, and what I like to do is just kind of, you know, well, what if you tried this and, and tried to document and see what happens? Because I think when we were starting the project, like I really didn't want to go on record making any kind of claim about what level of proficiency we'd get. Uh, so I was definitely not doing what Benny Lewis was doing. It was like, I'm going to be fluent in three right, months. Right. And then, and then, you know, the, the nitpickers in there are kind of like, is this really fluent question mark after it? Um, whereas for me, it was like, well, I have no idea. Like I, I haven't done this before. Maybe, maybe it'll work. Maybe it'll completely fail. So how much has this idea of adding technology to what you're doing entered into your thinking? Um, yeah. I mean, learning something, if you have this little AI bot that's sitting <laughs> on your shoulder that looks like a parrot that's talking back and forth to you, and <laughs> and you uh, you can have these conversations with it in, uh, in four different languages, I guess, or five. Um, yeah, five French <laughs> too, right? You speak French. Yeah, it's yeah, so yeah. so this idea of somehow speeding up the learning 
through technology yeah. rather than just banging your head against the wall, getting it in there. So I have mixed thoughts on technology and learning because I think that on the one hand, like it's clear if you look at the projects I did, that technology played a huge role. Like the MIT challenge would just would straight up not have been possible if MIT decided, okay, we're not going to upload all of our courseware for free. Like that was the entire conceit of the project was that they were already doing this. So if you rewind the clock back to the 1980s, it just, I couldn't have done it. You have things like maybe the great courses, which right. is, you know, some professor having a badly audio recorded, you know, rambling lecture, but there's no assignments, there's no tests, there's no evaluative criteria. Like how, how can you even attempt to, to, you know, benchmark off of a, an actual degree. Whereas for me, like the MIT challenge was just like, you know, this is new. I, I, I didn't, don't know if anyone's ever tried this before. Um, and similarly with the language learning project, I mean, there were lots of tools uh, I, you know, I can talk about flashcards in, um, in Mandarin that played a huge role uh, for, especially for acquiring the knowledge of the characters, which is like a really flashcard amenable task. And, um, and even in, you know, lots of the other things there was technology in terms of, you know, getting to the country having Google translate on your phone is, is, has incalculable value because if you have to look through a dictionary, it's just not at fluent speed. Right. You can't talk to people. So this whole idea of like, okay, well, I'm going to just start speaking from, uh, from, you know, the, when we get off the plane, either, either you have to have a much higher initial level of ability, which I don't recommend going in with zero, but we were closer to zero than we could have been with that. And also, um, you know, it's just way harder if you're like, okay, I can't use any English, but I can't use any tool for explaining myself. And I've got 15 words and I have to be like, you know, I need cold medicine because I'm sick right now. <laughs> like, how do you deal with that? Right. Whereas if you type in cold medicine, in your phone, you can say it to the person and get some progress. So on the one hand, like it's obvious that technology plays a big role. On the other hand, I'm less technologically optimistic than perhaps some people in the educational space. And so it's it's kind of funny you mentioned that because I'm working on some like research right now, but it basically centers around how it's my opinion that we've kind of uh, underestimated the transfer problem in a lot of tasks. And so there is a real tendency to like, let's substitute the actual work of learning this with some game, which is popular and fun. And maybe you get more people to engage with it. But I worry that um, if you're not actually getting people to perform the cognitive skill that is required in the real situation, uh, it's just a waste of time. Like it doesn't actually help very much. And so, uh, you know, I, I'm really critical of uh, Duolingo in my book. And I mean, I haven't used their app in a number of years, so maybe it's gotten a lot better and I've got egg on my face after I say this. But I remember after the trip, because it, it had kind of gotten popular after I we did the trip and I was going to um, Italy for a little stay. And I was like, oh, I should try Italian Duolingo. Let's just, you know, let's try it out. And like one of the tasks was this, um, it had like a word box where you put the, the words in Italian and there was an English sentence and you had to drag them to form the sentence. And this to me was just like, it was the, the kind of activity that someone who, doesn't really like have a good understanding of of this cognitive science part would be like oh yeah this is you know helping me learn the words but when you think about what you actually have to do with your head 
with your mind in order to perform this task, it is nothing like what you actually have to do when you're speaking a language. First of all, you're using all these cues that are not available in the real situation. So for instance, the first word is always capitalized. So you get that one for free, right? You always get to put that one there because it's the one that's capitalized. And then the second, it's you know, you're dealing with like five or six words in English and five or six words in the other language. So being able to recognize that this word means this noun in the sentence is a much, much easier task than here's the English word I want to recall. And it could be any possible set of sounds in this other language. What was it? Right. And and to say it with enough precision to do it. So I think that Duolingo is an example of this because I feel like uh, it's just I don't really mean to pick on Duolingo specifically, but I think it's just a more general trend in education at large. And we can dig into this to um, really emphasize the learning problem of like, how do we get you to perform on some criterion task and not to deal with the transfer or validity problem of does that criterion task matter at all for the thing that you're actually doing? And often I think the answer is no, (laughs) it's not actually what you need to do. And so there is this kind of, um, trend, I think, with uh, education and stuff to just like, you know, to make tools, to make games, to make apps, to try to make things more enticing, more fun. And I think these can be done well, but I think there's also a peril that, you know, we're just inventing things that like look like this is what you need to do to learn a language and it's not really what you need to do. And maybe that's fine for the people who are never actually going to speak a language like that. You know, this is just something to play with on their phone, but I think it helps to at least be honest about that. You know, if that's what we're doing. It's always occurred to me that people that make the language software, their whole marketplace is built on good intentions. Um, And the the success rates are, are really tiny in most of the the language software. Um, so I've been thinking a lot about this idea of having a conversational interface, having being able to yeah. talk back and forth to a bot. And the bot then picks up on what things you're conversant in, what things you've learned, yeah. what skills you currently have, where you're deficient, and what it'll take to bring you up to speed. Um, if we can get to that point, and it's a big if. I mean, we're, we've got lots yeah. of uh, details to work through, but if we can do that, then that theoretically should be a much more efficient way of learning things because it will know exactly what you should be focused on because so there's not so much uh, redundancy on things you've already learned. Well, well, I agree in principle. I mean, I think that... Uh you know, it's, uh, it was a Paul, uh, Bloom, I'm trying to remember the first name, uh, but ben, Bloom study ben. about the two Sigma problem in education, which is just basically that like, it's very hard to find educational interventions that don't just do as well as one-on-one tutoring. And the problem with one-on-one tutoring is it's too expensive, that's right? Like that's why we have classrooms with 30 kids and one teacher because one-on-one is too expensive. And so if you could make automated tutors, like there's just enormous potential there because then you have, you know, poor villagers in some developing country able to access, you know, someone who has created a system that allows them to get guided instruction at like, you know, the elite college level in the United States. And I think that has huge opportunity. Um, I think that, you know, my my feeling is that uh, like, I've seen some of the stuff with like, uh, the, is it GPT or GTPM? GPT. GPT. GTP is another thing. (laughs) Uh, quantity and diphosphate. But um, the, 
the stuff that they're doing right now, I think is very interesting, but I, I don't know whether we're there yet with the technology to do that. I have seen, like I was reading a book that was talking about transfer and this is like from, you know, this is way before deep learning and all that kind of stuff, but it was from Anderson and Singley, the uh, transfer of cognitive skill. And this was this idea they were trying to, they were trying to investigate learning, but they're doing it through the context of a computer tutor mm-hmm. of, of doing a computer task. In this case, it was using a, like an, an editor, word editor. This is pre GUIs. So this is like, they were kind of hard to use back then. And, um, and so they were, seeing mistakes people were making and then kind of creating this complicated kind of expert system, like, you know, if then tree to figure out, okay, you're making this kind of mistake. Therefore I'm going to give you this example or give you this instruction or don't do this or watch out for this. And so I think the idea of having this kind of, um, replacing the teacher, um, or tutor with, uh, with computer software, is is definitely interesting and it's been around for a while but again i I do want to say this i i think that um there are certain domains of learning which are like really amenable to this kind of highly standardized thing like mathematics maybe computer programming where there's very much a right answer and there's a limited number of operations you can move so there's the mistakes are bounded whereas um you know i think for again for learning a language right now i think it is still hard because um, you know, this is one of the things that I, I also found difficult about Duolingo is that on the situations where you get to where you type in the answer, it's very unforgiving. So it kind of goes to the opposite direction that if you didn't say the sentence exactly the way that they wanted you to say it, then it's wrong. Um, even though real languages don't work that way, there's usually like, you know, synonyms. There's usually like you could have said it with, you know, the, the word order didn't have to be exactly that way to be correct. And so, um, you know, they're kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place. Either they make the assessment way too easy and then you're not really testing yourself or they make it kind of artificially hard and then you, you create uh, their own problems. And so, I don't know. I think it just depends on how much you think the the learning that we need to do fits more into the kind of mathematics paradigm that's, um, you know, really amenable to this kind of clear bounded types of error modes. And you can think about it versus, you know, something like tennis, which it, it totally doesn't fit that model at all. Right. Right. So I, I suspect that building a tutor for something like philosophy and open-ended reasoning would be yeah. an, an AI complete problem. Like you, you might just have to build something that's approximately equivalent to a human being in order to tackle that, that at all. But I, I do think yeah. that you could roll it out in stages. It, it, you're right that certain domains are just more amenable to this approach than others. And I'm sure it's no, no coincidence that math and computer science were the places where we first saw these efforts rolling out, you know, automated tech, well, textbooks where you could actually run code in the browser, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it seems like there are places where you could pluck some of the lower hanging fruit. So, I mean, you, you yeah. could, for example, monitor attention in an automated fashion and just notice when people are not paying attention any longer, or you might be able to pinpoint yeah. the specific problem that they're making. So maybe the, the algorithm is not able to actually coach them through the process of solving this problem correctly, but it can say, it looks like they're screwing up at this place right here. They don't have an accurate model of how this process works. Well, so, uh, you know, I'm going to shift the topic a little bit because I think uh, automated tutors are interesting, but I think there's actually a lot of interesting opportunity for technology that isn't quite like that. So I really like, uh, the possibility of tools like live streaming 
as a way of kind of getting scale at this sort of apprenticeship model, because although it is the case that it's it's often helpful to have the feedback from the tutor, this is what you're doing wrong. Um, just being able to watch someone do what they're doing, right? Especially if it comes with some kind of explanation for it, especially if it's a highly mental task, you know, you're not just like building something with your hands, but you're performing some cognitive work and then you get the answer. Uh, and so, you know, the analogy uh, or the example that I, I like to point to, which I think is really fascinating, is uh, there's a whole community of people who try to play video games as fast as possible. And the, the, the interesting yeah. thing about this is just if you look at the progress of how they've been doing it, many games that were, you know, the, the best example is Tetris, which was a super popular game in like the 80s or 90s. And, you know, everyone was playing Tetris back then. And now far, far fewer people are playing it, but they're much, much better at it. Like if you watch any videos of these people, they, they break the game where, you, you know, they get to too high a level. So now you can't even see any of the pieces, the screen's all glitchy and they keep <laughs> playing through it and stuff. But the, the thing to me that's interesting is because I don't have a particular interest in te uh, Tetris. The thing that interests me about that is that this is sort of a domain of human innovation and what's what is pushing it? What is pushing the progress forward, even though you have a much smaller group of people working on it? Again, no financial incentives or anything like that. And it seems to me to be that, first of all, you have live streaming or just sort of the rule that in order to count as having accomplished something, you have to have a video record of having done it. Um, and so that in and of itself allows anyone to reverse engineer. So as soon as someone figures out something, they can see how you did it. And then, so it's sort of like the patent system on steroids. Right. And then also there's these communities of online forums. So you can get super niche interests that allow this kind of discussion so that, you know, innovations can spread throughout the network quite quickly. Whereas before, if you wanted to get good at Tetris, well, I don't know, maybe your buddy, he's pretty good at Tetris. He can tell you some tricks, but I mean, it's just that local network graph can't transcend that. So I think there's a lot of opportunities for technology that um, they don't even involve AI, but just involve using the kind of ways that we learn in a more organic um, analog way, uh, but leverage the scale effects of, of the internet and leverage the scale effects of, you know, being able to take one thing that, Previously, you could stand 10 people around some guy doing it, and that would be all the people who could see it to, you know, now you could have 10 million people watching that person, or you could have, you know, pages of dissection of exactly how they did it, you know? Um, I've, I've actually been thinking in terms of assessment bots. And mm -hmm. if, if you have a conversational interface with something, yeah. then you talk back and forth. And so it's assessing what you're knowledgeable on and what you're not. Mm -hmm. And it also assesses what your your interests are, where what things capture your imagination and what things you couldn't care less about. And, <laughs> and, and being able to then... Uh, this idea of being able to quantify what a skill is, I think, is is so interesting um, be, because it's not straightforward at all. Um, and so what skills uh, are you going to need in the future? Where, where are you lacking? Um, yeah. So I, I think a lot about in terms of the same technology that's automating our jobs out of existence is the same yeah. technology that's going to be creating new jobs where it's going to be opening up the opportunities for creating new businesses and new industries. And, and, and so it, but it's all add on skills. I mean, we're adding on new skills that we need to be able to function in those, uh, those new industries. Um, and so mm -hmm. how do we do that quick and efficiently? 
and yeah, and say that uh, I want you to give the answer in ten words. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that's a really good idea if we can make it work. Is that 10? <laughs> well, and it, it seems to me like there might be some uh, major ground to be uh, uh, traversed here by marrying these two approaches. So you mentioned yeah. live streaming, right? And so I'm, I'm thinking about that. And then as Thomas is, is talking, I'm thinking about ways you might apply what he's discussing to that process as well. So, I mean, if you had like, you know, somebody live streaming themselves, solving some sort of cognitive task as they're, they're coding and they're sort of narrating their process. And then yeah. people can ask questions. The conversational interface is able to do some semantic parsing and understand kind of what the confusion is or what their interest is. Maybe, you know, prioritizes the greater degrees of confusion up in the, the live stream chat so the person sees it more clearly, that sort of thing, or, or uh, is, is maybe able to flag people when their attention is waning and let them know that they're, that they're losing the, the thread. So that wouldn't involve any serious advances in artificial intelligence. It's just a way of sort of combining a couple of different advances to make a platform yeah. that in theory, at least, could substantially improve learning outcomes? Well, I guess the way I think of it is that, you know, the the leading institutions that are trying to change how we learn things are higher education. So, you know, as like, like I went through the MIT, put their course online. But I think often the challenge is that, uh, you know, higher education often, not always, but often works to, um, to signal what kinds of abilities you have rather than, okay, the knowledge you learn in school is literally the reason you're getting paid more at the job because, you know, a lot of it doesn't transfer. It's not particularly useful for the specific job that you actually end up doing. And I think anyone who thinks about the work they do can reflect on that being at least somewhat true. Um, and so to me, I think that the way we actually become skilled at our jobs and develop the kinds of competencies you're talking about, especially in like a really, you know, high skilled society where, you know, what you do is not just something you can just pull a guy off the street and pay him $16 an hour, throw on some overalls and right. there you go. I can show you in 10 minutes, you know, we're dealing with skills that require years to develop and, and we don't really know exactly how to develop them. But I think the model of apprenticeship speaking broadly of just being in a real job environment where you're given tasks of increasing complexity and you have a peer group that kind of knows how to do it and you can kind of ask for help. And, you know, I, I'm not specifically trying to bring back this um, formal master apprentice relationship where you're uh, indentured to this person for seven years or something like that. But I think that this general idea of kind of learning by doing and being in the real environment could be augmented by technology because one of the major problems with that right now is that taking your most productive workers, pulling them off the assembly line, so to speak, to go train a bunch of new people is enormously costly. I, I was reading an essay that was talking about apprenticeship in Germany where it's successful and they were saying, yeah, it works, but it's also super expensive. Like you have to invest an enormous amount of money per um per apprentice to actually get these results. And so I think, you know, there could be a lot of interesting ways that organizations could, um, you know, maybe like their best person, instead of mentoring one person, you know, does set up a live stream where they're narrating how they do certain projects and this kind of thing. And so you get the best possible person showing how they code and deal with this kind of problem. And, uh, you know, maybe some other people help make it into like a more usable document. So you don't just have to watch like 20 hours of live streaming to get the point. Um, you know, maybe there's something there. And, and, and so I just use the speed rating community as a little bit of an analogy, just because it seems to me to be a situation where 
innovation has occurred at a really breathtaking space because of technology, but not technology in the sense of like, that was directly how they were getting better, but just in terms of how knowledge was getting disseminated across a network of people, how innovation was accumulating. And so to me, that's, I think, where there's a lot of really untapped potential right now um, that, you know, I, I don't know exactly what form it would take. I am not like peer pitching a startup, but I think that there's there's a lot of interesting possibility there. So, so there's like a technology for access, which is sort of what you're advocating for. Then there's like a technology for process, which you're more skeptical of. Is that fair? Well, it's not that technology for process is necessarily bad. Um, and I like, I really like your idea of, of having the chatbot. I don't know whether we're there yet. Like I've, I've used, I, I remember there was someone who made a, it was like a text adventure game made with the uh, GPT-3. Uh, and it was really interesting, you know, it, it kind of, but it also, it lacks some of the mm, intentional content that we normally expect from a conversational partner. So it's a little bit like interacting with someone in a fugue state, like they produce great sounding sentences, but there, there's no, it's very much a, uh, like one, one sentence after the other, there's no real goal. And so in this particular game, I remember playing, and I was just, you know, playing around with it. It was really interesting because it could kind of create these colorful scenarios, but it didn't work as a game because you could always like, and then I pull out of my pocket, a magic wand and teleport to right. the finish line or something. And it would just run with that. It would just say, Oh yeah, great. <laughs> and so I think to me, if, if like, I'm not an AI researcher, so feel free to give this zero weight. But to me, I feel like what we have with deep learning is we've solved a really important breakthrough that the mind uses to do this kind of pattern-based inferences and, you know, generating speech and motor action. And I think it's very, very fascinating, but I think there's probably, you know, if, if I could go hundred years in the future of my spaceship, there's probably a couple other key conceptual breakthroughs that need to happen um, in order to have the, the some of the qualitative features that we think of, of, of human cognition, of just being able to hold goals in place and, um, you know, decide between different courses of action and making plans and things like this. Um, I think that's an important part of, of speech and talking to people, but I haven't seen any real applications that do this in the, in the GPT three kind of super sophisticated fluent speaking way. And I know obviously you can do customer service chat bots that, but those are almost like the expert systems of, of earlier days where they look for a few keywords and you say, did you mean this? And they send you a link to an FAQ article. It's not quite the same thing, right? So we've, we've been speculating on, uh, different kind of learning. Uh, the idea that you could put on a full body spandex suit, yeah, and and then it would have certain triggers that would trigger your muscles in your body, so you could be programmed to be like an o Olympic gymnast, and it would as you start doing your flips and everything, naturally it would, you'd have to do it a few times and crash and burn a few times before <laughs> your muscles would get up to speed. But being able to trigger the right muscles at the right time would be a real interesting way to do physical learning in ways that's not possible right now. Um, yeah. And so, uh, it, you know, that could translate into lots of other physical activities as well. Um, so... So anyway, this is this is something kind of on the on the cutting edge of reality. 
Um, yeah. Well, I mean, I think it's really interesting. I think it's kind of also the problem of robotics. Like, how do you get robots to move in human-like ways? I think part of the difficulty is um, is that we're like, especially in the realm of physical action, but I, I think you could also make the argument even more cognitive skills are similar. There's a lot of um, spanning in terms of you're not just making a decision like some motor plan, like I'm going to do this action and just executing it from your imagination. It's this kind of constant, oh, there's a little bit too much tension here. I need to balance, do this and this and this. And so I think it's that calibration of those feedback that that what is actually being learned um, in in a in a physical skill. And so if let's say I, you know, get um, who is, who's that great American gymnast of binds, I think is her last name. But if I got a suit or with her that like mapped all Biles, of her muscle Simone, coordination, Simone, Biles, Simone, Simone Biles. Biles. Is that yeah, Sorry, yeah. Okay. Um, but if I got like a suit on her that just like recorded every single little muscle fiber twitch and like recorded her doing some, you know, triple somersault thing. And then I put the suit on myself and assuming I'm in good enough shape that I'm not going to rip all the bones in my body. Um, I think it wouldn't work just because all of those muscular movements are also calibrated for her exact size and weight and distribution and these kinds of things. And so I think the, you know, in even just the, the terrain and stuff that you're on, like if you're on a certain terrain and it gives a little bit more, your body instantly adjusts. And so I think this kind of, um, like to me, I think what would be really interesting is how you can facilitate learning a skill, a physical skill, um, more efficiently, perhaps by recognizing what kind of what kind of feedback settings the body has wrong. And I think that's an area where we're not really that far. I know that there are situations where like coaches and stuff will like, you know, videotape someone and make little, but it's a kind of a crude measure, right? It would be something far more interesting to look at like, okay, if you're moving in a certain way, actually you do this action with this muscle just a little bit too. So you need to like have something that will recalibrate you so that you'll do it in a different way. So I think there is, I mean, there is potential for this, but we're, we're, we're obviously dealing with like a pretty speculative territory when it comes to how technology might affect future motor learning. Right. And I, I wonder if um, it might not be expandable into cognitive skills as well. It's interesting that you, you brought that up. So I, I've often wished that there were some way to stimulate patterns in my brain that map onto patterns in someone else's brain. So I have a friend who's a mathematician and mm -hmm. I've been thinking about this for a while because he, he sort of tutored me in math for a bit. And I, I wondered if we, we might not, it might not be possible to hook us both up with, you know, transcranial magnetic stimulation uh, electrodes, right? Yeah. And then looking at the parietal lobe or whatever is flashing in his brain as he's doing solving some sort of problem, like might you be able to do the same thing in me and yeah. achieve some sort of measurable speed up? And I, I think the big problem there is just math may not be represented the same way in his brain as it is in mine. And maybe just lighting my brain up is not really the right way to do it, but it's, well, it's an interesting yeah. angle, I think. I, I mean, again, I think like while we're speculating on things, yeah, that sounds really cool. Um, <laughs> but I think, um, you know, again, and now we're now we're tre treading into more areas where I have no expertise in. But I, you know, if you look at, let's say, the blood vessels and the capillaries in your body, even identical twins don't have them in exactly the same place. Right. 
they're not generated via some, you know, like there's somewhere in your genome that says, okay, this capillary and like my left index finger is going to branch at exactly this cell. It's rather that there is some kind of generative algorithm that has a little bit of noise that, that gets the job done. It knows that it has to link everything together and, you know, um, I'm, I'm not going to go into embryology, but I think that that's probably true of the nervous system, right? Like we're born with way more neurons than we have in our adult life. And there's this massive culling of neurons and it's based probably on sensory feedback. They're like, these are unhelpful patterns. So is the brain is probably not created via some extremely rigorous, put this neuron here and it does X. It's rather kind of like make a lot of neurons that are wired in roughly this mat fashion and then just use the normal mechanisms of feedback and apoptosis to just weed out all the neurons that don't do what we want it to do. And so I think about that, like, I, I think that, you know, if you were to map, let's say someone's skill onto your brain, onto someone else's brain, perhaps there's enough, uh, enough kind of isomorphism there that you could get some kind of mapping. And I mean, I know that they're, they've done some work where, They've used uh, people's visual cortexes and they've um, kind of read off some of the uh, magnetic readings of people's visual cortexes and use that to see what they're looking at um, in like a really low res picture version. Uh, but even that seems to be like you're doing some kind of training for that person. I don't know whether you can apply the exact same algorithm to every single person, but you know, the visual cortex is organized topographically, uh, roughly. So, you know, maybe that there's enough similarity there that like, if you put it on your brain, onto my brain, I could see what you're seeing or something. Maybe that's possible. I don't know. Um, but in terms of like a motor skill, or especially when we're talking about learning of quite specific things, my feeling is that they probably are quite specific, you know, patterns of activation in the brain. Like they, they just can't be super, okay, there's just a little patch here that that lights up when you do algebra because there's not enough patches, right? Unless, you know what I mean? I, I think there's probably a situation where you have an assemblage of, you know, thousands or maybe even hundreds of thousands of neurons that are all, you know, in activation at the same time. And that just happens to be the key that unlocks a very particular kind of movement or thought. Uh, but it may not be the same neurons at all in, in someone else. And so even if you were to get the transmagnet stimulator on both sides, you know, maybe it's, you know, you're thinking of oranges and this person's going to be thinking of, you know, bicycles or something like that. <laughs> I, I don't know. So now that, that, that's a fair point. Um, one of the things I wanted to talk about was introspection. So you, yeah. you said that, you know, in the future, maybe the immediate future, you see possibilities around live streaming and people sort of narrating their process as they go through solving some sort of cognitive task. Mm -hmm. And that's highly non-trivial. So one of the things I'm always talking about is that introspection is a skill, yeah. which most people suck at, and that it matters a lot. And one of the, if I may say it this way, innovations in my project, the Stempunk project, was I spent a lot of time thinking about when I had screwed up something. And I, yeah. I started making these little flow charts and trying to track down the cognitive errors. And I would sort of try to go through the process of, of, of making the correct cognitive maneuver. You know, I would like try to do it like reps in the gym or something. And I didn't take that super far, but as far as far as I've been able to tell, nobody's really tread that path or thought very much about that. And so it seems like uh, you would be looking for people who are really, really good at introspecting their thought process processes and, and figuring out exactly yeah. the, the moves they're making. Because a lot of that is, it takes a lot of work to see when, when your brain is, you know, when it's missing a detail or when it's 
when it's shying away from a conclusion, it takes a lot of time to notice those, those little movements, cognitive movements. And so I just wonder if you've given any thought to that, if you think it's improvable. Well, somehow. first of all, first of all, I'll say that, um, you know, I haven't actually tested this idea. As I said, I don't have like a startup to pitch for like, this is what we're doing. We're doing this new kind of everyone's hooking up your live streaming to your big company and everyone's going to learn better. So I don't know. There's probably lots of problems with it. I'm sure someone's tried it before and they can tell you, oh, this is, these are the reasons why it doesn't work that I haven't thought of. But um, I don't think what you're talking about necessarily applies. I don't think that it's the case that you need someone that has a superhuman introspective ability in order to be able to like narrate their cognitive processes. Because in my mind, it's, it's kind of the same thing as apprenticeship, right? Like it, it it's, you know, the person does it, Right. And then, you know, okay, well, why did you do that? I don't know. I did it for this reason. And I don't think that when apprentices do things, they often know why they are doing things exactly the way they're doing. And now that's how you do it. You do this first and then you do that. And so I don't think you need to have a really good kind of theory of why you're doing what you're doing in order to be a good kind of um, exemplar or model for someone else doing a certain behavior. You just have to do it. They have to watch you. And, um, they have to try, obviously, you know, you don't just learn it instantly just by watching someone either. But um, I don't think it's the case that I need to know why I'm doing every single thing that I'm doing. Uh, like that might be true if I were to uh, try to reduce it to text, what I'm doing. But I think the whole idea of live streaming video is that there is so much tacit skill that goes into performing in our professional lives that is hard to codify, that's hard to write down in terms of, you know, uh, in terms of expert systems, in terms of like, okay, if you do this, then do this. So if you just watch someone doing it, um, doing some kind of typical tasks or doing some sorts of things, then you'd be able to do it. And I think that there's probably a little bit of um, explaining required for a cognitive task in the sense that, you know, uh, if you did something that it wasn't obvious why you did it, maybe you could say, well, I'm thinking I'm going to have to have this problem. So I'm going to have to do this right now. So there's maybe a little bit more narration um, than it would be if it was, you know, purely physical. But at the same time, I think that's another reason why if you were, if you were doing this, it would work a lot better with skills that have, that do cross the kind of skull, right? Like if it was just, okay, I'm just staring at a chalkboard for an hour and then I write an <laughs> equation and it'd right. be like, mm, correct. Right. Like then there is very hard to do this. But if you were dealing with someone programming and you have a, a thing of, you, you see all the things they're typing, you see what they typed and what they're doing, this kind of stuff. And, um, I think it's possible that you could, if you had this kind of recording and especially, I think the thing that makes the speedrunning community work so well is that there is a kind of competitive atmosphere of trying to reach certain certain kind of criteria and this kind of thing. So I don't know whether that's the thing that would prevent it from translating because maybe you work on some work task and no one's ever trying to do that exact thing ever again. And so it's, you know, it's not that helpful to, to watch the video and maybe the, the more abstract principles of why you were doing that particular task aren't, 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 uh, aren't apparent. But I think that um, just that ability to watch someone doing what they're doing and get feedback and the ability to scale that is a potential use of technology. I mean, the apprenticeship and this idea of learning through watching someone do something through an example, I think this is how we've learned, you know, way before the education system, this is, this is all of human history. So I think we're kind of designed in a certain way to learn, um, learn that way. Um, and so I don't know, I think introspective ability though, to, to your point is something that, we kind of, a lot of people take for granted that if you're doing something, you should know the reasons for why you're doing it. 
maybe that's just a communicative norm that like we expect people to be accountable for their own actions. And so we just have this sort of assumption that everyone knows why they're doing what they're doing because to, to not assume that would be to just invite people being like, I don't know when they did something that was obviously a, a transgression and, and then it would prevent us from punishing them and this kind of thing. So maybe there's just a little bit of a white lie there in how we, how we deal with things. But obviously in terms of how the brain actually works, we have no idea what's going on most of the time in most ways. And most things just arrive to us as a fully finished answer of do this this is the right thing to do um, with not really that many intervening layers of cognition where there was a lot of calculating and figuring out. Calculating and figuring out is the exception, not the rule. Like usually you do something because it just mm, occurs to you to do that. Um, and you have no idea how you arrived at it as opposed to some long drawn out process of reasoning through various alternatives. So when you, when you look at the path of progress, um, Apparently, Shakespeare was the first person that actually wrote about characters talking to themselves. Mm -hmm. And so that um, people uh, always did that, but they didn't yeah. ever talk about it. And so that was the first time that they ever, uh, anybody ever created characters that talked to themselves. So that was the first form of introspection. And this idea of, of learning a, a skill, whether you're a, a machine, um, uh, make, making things on a big machine or whatever device you're working with, learning those skills is, uh, is a painful process. I mean, it's being an apprentice, uh, learning how to bake bread or, or lay cement or whatever you're doing. Um, the, that's, that's such a slow and arduous process. Now, when we look at how things have progressed uh, over the last few years, we, we're, th we're thinking in terms of downloading individual skills. I mean, so how would we reverse engineer? We put this little thing on the side of somebody's head that's an expert on this topic, and mm -hmm. then it reverse engineers all of the, the stuff, and then you put it on somebody else's head, and then they, um, then they suddenly know, they know that skill. But um, if you take it to the next level, then it's the idea of downloading an entire person's brain, everything that's in your head, um, and being able to upload it into somebody else which is probably a long ways away. And, and like then, brain to brain? Yeah, yeah. So, and um, I, I think we could fit it all into one of these micro SD mm -hmm. cards now. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, being able to do that then, um, it, that's, that's kind of the path of progress. I mean, that's the way that people are thinking in, in terms of doing things like this. And then naturally there's all kinds of problems. I mean, there's privacy issues about you downloaded this person's brain, then you get all their uh, kinky, quirky stuff that they shouldn't <laughs> know about anyway. Uh, so how do you filter all that out? But um, anyway, that, that's kind of, the, kind of the path of progress, that, the way I look at things. Yeah, I mean, uh, I think you're talking about like like brain emulation. Uh, there's sort of two separate things, like kind of going from one person's brain to another person's brain, which I have no idea how you do that. It sounds like a very interesting engineering challenge, but I think it, it deals with the problem that I was saying before that if if there's no hard coded instructions like the like a blueprint, right? Like if you have a blueprint at a you know. A, a fab factory that's making microchips they make exactly the same microchip every time and they need enormous like precision you can't have any dust or anything because it'll screw it up 
um, to make these uh, chips exactly the same every time. I don't think it's plausible at all that that's how our brains get made, right? Because nature and evolution doesn't, they don't care whether they can make exactly the same. They just need to make something that works, right? right. And so I feel like instead you, you don't have a blueprint, you have more like a recipe, right? That you make a bread and the bread is never going to be exactly the same in terms of the crumb structure and the crust and this kind of, like, it's not going to be identical. You don't slice it and, like there's a hole in exactly that part each time you make it. But if you follow the recipe well enough, the bread tastes most or more or less the same and it's good enough for a sandwich. And so I think the good enough for a sandwich rule is how the, the brain is, is, is actually made. And so I think that would create impressive engineering challenges because we don't care about just having a brain that's good enough for a sandwich. We want it to be us, right? right. And so if you want to make it in one brain to another, I think that would be um, fiendishly difficult to get this, you know, again, like think of all the capillaries in your arms, like getting someone to make exactly those capillaries in another arm would be uh, challenging. And that's an even larger structure than the neurons and synapses and stuff, which are, you know, they're, they're tiny. And so I think there's, uh, you know, I think there's more potential for someone doing an extremely high resolution deconstruction of someone's brain and making a digital copy of that, that maybe we could simulate on a, on a supercomputer or something. But I think that's uh that itself, I think, has a lot of, there's a lot more scientific and engineering breakthroughs, you know, obviously that have to happen before that's possible. But I, I tend to think that there's more than than maybe some futurists think in terms of stuff in between. Like you read papers now and, and there's people talking about how maybe synaptic strength isn't even the basis for memories. I, I was reading a paper the other day that was talking about how it might actually be related to um, uh, DNA gene regulation that's coming back up. And I don't remember the studies they were looking at, but, um, they were, you know, you can even look at things like, um, uh, caterpillars, you can do some classical conditioning experiments on them. They turn into a butterfly. They remember the things that they were when they were a caterpillar and they like, they turn into goop in the middle. So I think, um, you know, whatever's, whatever's happening there, it's, it's, you know, we're not even quite sure what it is. I was reading another um, paper that was talking about how this is, this is again, not a, not the consensus opinion. This is by some heterodox um, neuroscientist, but he was talking about how there is evidence in the Purkinje cells, which are in the cerebellum, that they can individually encode time delay data. So that like, if something happens one second or several milliseconds after they can store that internally, which implies that like the neurons are themselves more computationally complicated than maybe the neural nets that we have, where they're just sort of this atomic unit that fires or it yep. doesn't and, and integrates input that like, maybe there's some computation going inside the neuron. And, and I, I don't know, I don't want to be um, saying that any things are, any of these things are definitive, just that I think that there's still a long way to go in terms of both neuroscience and I think on the AI engineering end to get to a point where, you know, they're, they're lasering our brains and then we're living in <laughs> virtual reality. That'd be cool though, but uh, I think it's still a ways off. So, so Scott is, is less sanguine about these possibilities than we are, I think. Well, I just think maybe they're like two, 300 years off. I just, I just don't I know was hoping to be, be alive to, next year. Yeah. Maybe, or, yeah. Maybe after. yeah. 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 Well, I, I heard Elon Musk, you can just, you can just write him a check and he'll, he'll get it set up for you. That's in the next true. Five yeah. years. Oh, oh yeah. I mean, with Neuralink, we should be able to yeah. download anything, uh, upload. And I'm pretty sure that he's going to be able to teach those pigs that he's working with how to drive <laughs> a car. 
<laughs> <laughs> well, I think one thing that I, I think is more possible is a kind of a computer brain interface, which is, I think, what Neuralink is proposing, which is not attempting to extract our consciousness or really even necessarily download something in the way that, you know, okay, now it's in my brain. But you could imagine, for instance, uh, if you were performing, okay, so a good example is right now, if I wanted to go speak another language that I don't speak, I could turn on my phone and use Google Translate, which is imperfect, but it, it works reasonably well, better than not knowing anything at all. And I can speak my audio into it and then it'll come out in the language of the other person and then they can speak into it. It'll come back to me. And like, we have this technology now. It doesn't work perfectly, but we have this now. So it's not, it's not impossible to imagine that if there was some way of kind of reading that, you know, the, the, they do like really fine grained fMRI scans on you and they can tell you're thinking these words right now. Right. And if they had some sort of like, okay, microphone. So you just, okay, I think these words and then they just translate and I just speak it. And when the words, the other person speaks, it just goes into my head and uh, automatically, I think that that's something that's, you know, not quite as not quite as far off. That might be something that, you know, 10 years from now, maybe they're doing, I don't know if they can get over the, all the regulatory hurdles of implanting electrodes into your right. brain, which, uh, <laughs> which I think is a, is another thing. Yeah. So, uh, you have become famous as a guy who tackles all these major projects. What's, uh, <laughs> what's on the plate now? What, what are you planning for the future? Well, it's funny cause we've been kind of talking about it. I think this is just me, um, top of mind uh, talking about all the things I've been immersing myself in research on, but I become very interested in this idea of learning by doing as a kind of, not really as an alternative to the current education system and that like everyone should be just learning by doing, but kind of recognizing that this is often what we struggle with when we're learning. So, you know, real basic example, if you are in a classroom and you have a test to study for, um, many students will just look over their notes. They don't do the practice questions for the test, right? This is, so there's this kind of mixture of the practice questions for the test or what you really need to do to be good at the test, but there's resistance to do that. And it's a lot easier to, you know, look over your notes or re-highlight things or skim things. Like I've seen people in the library, this is how they study. And I think this is something that you can extrapolate to all sorts of scenarios. So like I was saying, it's, it's much more challenging and there's more obstacles to speaking a language with an actual person than to, you know, sitting on the bus playing on Duolingo. It's uh, more difficult to, you know, get a real job where you're doing programming projects than it is to, you know, watch some video on YouTube where someone's talking about programming or, you know, you buy a book and you keep it on your shelf and you're like, yeah, I'll flip through that at some point. And so it's uh, it's something that I've been thinking a lot about, about um, this, these ideas of apprenticeship and learning by doing and kind of thinking about them in a, in a little bit of a different way than maybe I was when, I was thinking about doing the MIT challenge where I really kind of took for granted that, well, universities are important. They must be teaching things the, the way that they ought to be taught. Um, so uh, that, that's sort of what I'm, I've been reading tons of books on, on that topic recently. So have, um, have you ever <clears throat> thought through the potential of, of creating a Scott Young AI teacher bot that will <laughs> coach people uh, to become super learners, to, to 
learn things really fast. And then you have your own branded AI bots and you could sell like uh, a million yeah. of them and they yeah. would be all over it sounds, the place. It sounds like a great, this sounds like a great way to make money. I don't know. I, well, again, as I said, I still have uh, some reservations that we're at that level yet with AI, but we're getting there close. So this isn't like the scanning the brain thing. This is something that I, I fully expect in 10 years that things like Siri and those kinds of things are much better than they are now. And they're already, I mean, pretty good. If you had told me when I was 15 that we have this thing, Siri, and you showed me how it worked, I would my mind would have been blown, right? So uh, just the fact that we just take it for granted that it exists right now and with its, with its strengths and limitations, I think is something in and of itself. But um, I don't know. Personally, I think that's also an interesting question because I find I have conversations with people and like I wrote this book and I, to me, I don't really see myself as having um, a unique method. Like I've, I'm the one who's cracked the code, so to speak. I, I rather just see it as like, I'm a guy who's really interested in learning. And so I, I read a lot of those big textbooks that people don't want to read about cognitive science. And I'm like, Oh, this is what they say. <laughs> so I think, I, I don't know. I think it's it, to me, the idea of wanting to learn more effectively is always going to be a little bit of a niche interest. If you think about just, you go to the bookshelves and look at what's on the front table, you know, it's, it's not really books about this, right? And so I think there is always going to be just a subset of people who are like really keen into understanding what the process is and trying to apply it to other skills. And so I think that, you know, I hope that like a book like mine can, can give them some of that that entryway into some of these ideas. And I, I don't know, I think for the average person, it's probably better to, to not, you know, not try to like deal with some really complicated synthesis of like, this is the best way to make, you know, flash or something, but like, okay, if you're going to be studying for a test, you should do the practice questions. Like that's just one sentence is what you should do. <laughs> so I don't know how much of a chat bot I could help with. I think there is your idea of having the chat bot for particular subjects is more fruitful just because, there's a lot more content there to impart. Whereas I think the, um, you know, advice for how to learn better that I can easily write down in a book, you know, well, I, I tried to put it in a book, but I mean, if you eliminate all the stories and just try to reduce it down to a cheat sheet, it, it wouldn't be super, super long. It's so I don't think it's necessarily that there's a, a really sophisticated general method for learning things better. Rather, there are a bunch of kind of useful tools and heuristics and you have to know when they work and when they don't work. And I think uh, more than anything, you have to have the will and interest to apply them. I think that second part is perhaps more uh, important than the content of the ideas themselves. And that's a big part of the reason I try to do these stories and stuff to encourage people. So it's just going to be a lot of work then. I mean, people. Well, it is a lot of work. I mean, it people is. People wanted to I, come know. listen to this podcast to find the <laughs> yeah. easy way. I, oh, yeah. I tricked you. Yeah, I tricked you. No, yeah. we want no, that I think, pill. Yeah. Well, everyone wants. Everyone wants the pill. I think. <laughs> but I think there is. There's two ways of putting it because I feel like yeah. You do have to do the work. There's no escape for it. There's a reason I called the book Ultra Learning. Um, and and to me it was because I really didn't like the idea of just calling it like you know effortless learning or like something like that. Cause I know that that's what people would want. So I know that that would sell more copies, but to me, the whole hallmark of it is that the techniques that work, um, you know, and I could go through a whole list of them. They tend to be somewhat harder than the thing that you might do on its own. And the efficiency gains I think are worth it. So studying effectively, even if it's more mentally taxing for that brief duration is much better than spending 10 times as much time in the library, wasting your time and, and failing on a test. 
But I think that is a trade-off that you have to consider. So you're saying that your next book will not be the four-hour college degree. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that would be something. That would sell a lot of copies. (laughs) Yeah. But I mean, I I think that's an inherent trade-off in many pursuits, not even just learning, just the fact that I think you can... You can talk about product, like effectiveness of, of your actions and strategy, right? And, and I think that if you speak about it in the vein of like, well, if you were going to try to accomplish goal X and you use an effective strategy and it takes half as much time, that's great, right? That's a savings. But I think the thing that takes half as much time is usually not like, oh, you sit on the couch and you just play on your phone and it's super fun and it doesn't require any effort, right? It's, it's usually more along the lines of like, well, if you were serious about it, you could do it this way. And, and get the result faster. And so I, I do think that there is that, that bit of a trade-off. And so I think that, um, you know, I think my message is, for instance, if we're speaking about learning languages, I think that the average person, if they applied an effective approach, could learn a language. A lot of people don't think they could learn a language as an adult. They could learn a language, speak it conversationally, and they could probably do so in a shorter time frame or a shorter number of total hours than they might naively think from their old high school Spanish classes that they remember sitting for many, many hours for. But on the reverse side, I also don't think it's effortless to do so. I right. don't think that there's some way of doing it that you, you just don't have to go through that difficulty of, okay, let's struggle through a conversation here. Right. Well, fantastic. Thanks so much for joining us today and and imparting this wisdom. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, this is great. Thanks. All right, ladies and gentlemen, I hope you enjoyed this interview with Scott Young. Don't forget to leave us a like and subscribe on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.